On Friendship by Marcus Tullius Cicero. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On Friendship. 6. Now, friendship may be thus defined, a complete accord on all subjects human and divine, joined with mutual goodwill and affection. And with the exception of wisdom, I am inclined to think nothing better than this has been given to man by the immortal gods. There are people who give the palm to riches or to good health or to power and office, many even to sensual pleasures. This last is the ideal of brute beasts, and of the others we may say that they are frail and uncertain and depend less on our own prudence than on the caprice of fortune. Then there are those who find the chief good in virtue. Well, that is a noble doctrine, but the very virtue they talk of is the parent and preserver of friendship, and without it friendship cannot possibly exist. Let us, I repeat, use the word virtue in the ordinary acceptation and meaning of the term, and do not let us define it in high-flown language. Let us account as good the persons usually considered so, such as Paulus, Cato, Gallus, Scipio, and Phalus. Such men as these are good enough for everyday life, and we need not trouble ourselves about those ideal characters which are nowhere to be met with. Well, between men like these, the advantages of friendship are almost more than I can say. To begin with, how can life be worth living, to use the words of Aeneas, which lacks that repose which is to be found in the mutual goodwill of a friend? What can be more delightful than to have someone to whom you can say everything with the same absolute confidence as to yourself? Is not prosperity robbed of half its value if you have no one to share your joy? On the other hand, misfortunes would be hard to bear if there were not someone to feel them even more acutely than yourself. In a word, other objects of ambition serve for particular ends, riches for use, power for securing homage, office for reputation, pleasure for enjoyment, health for freedom from pain, and full use of the functions of the body. But friendship embraces innumerable advantages. Turn which way you please, you will find it at hand. It is everywhere, and yet never out of place, never unwelcome. Fire and water themselves, to use a common expression, are not of more universal use than friendship. I am not now speaking of the common or modified form of it, though even that is a source of pleasure and profit, but of that true and complete friendship which existed between the select few who are known to fame. Such friendship enhances prosperity and relieves adversity of its burden by having and sharing it. 7. And great and numerous as are the blessings of friendship, this certainly is the sovereign one, that it gives us bright hopes for the future, and forbids weakness and despair. In the face of a true friend, a man sees, as it were, a second self, so that where his friend is, he is. If his friend be rich, he is not poor. Though he be weak, his friend's strength is his, and in his friend's life he enjoys a second life after his own is finished. This last is perhaps the most difficult to conceive, but such is the effect of the respect, the loving remembrance, and the regret of friends which follow us to the grave. While they take the sting out of death, they add a glory to the life of the survivors. 
Nay, if you eliminate from nature the tie of affection, there will be an end of house and city, nor will so much as the cultivation of the soil be left. If you don't see the virtue of friendship and harmony, you may learn it by observing the effects of quarrels and feuds. Was any family ever so well established, any state so firmly settled, as to be beyond the reach of utter destruction from animosities and factions? This may teach you the immense advantage of friendship. They say that a certain philosopher of Agrigentum, in a Greek poem, pronounced with the authority of an oracle the doctrine that whatever in nature and the universe was unchangeable was so in virtue of the binding force of friendship. Whatever was changeable was so by the solvent power of discord. And, indeed, this is a truth which everybody understands and practically attests by experience. For if any marked instance of loyal friendship in confronting or sharing danger comes to light, everyone applauds it to the echo. What cheers were there, for instance, all over the theatre at a passage in the new play of my friend and guest, Pasuvius, where the king, not knowing which of the two was Orestes, Pylades declared himself to be Orestes, that he might die in his stead, while the real Orestes kept on asserting that it was he. The audience rose en masse and clapped their hands. And this was at an incident in fiction. What would they have done, must we suppose, if it had been in real life? You can easily see what a natural feeling it is when men who would not have had the resolution to act thus themselves showed how right they thought it in another. I don't think I have any more to say about friendship. If there is any more, and I have no doubt there is much, you must, if you care to do so, consult those who profess to discuss such manners. Phineas we would rather apply to you, yet I have often consulted such persons, and have heard what they had to say with a certain satisfaction. But in your discourse, one somehow feels that there is a different strain. Scavola, you would have said that still more, Fannius, if you had been present the other day in Scipio's pleasure grounds when we had the discussion about the state. How splendidly he stood up for justice against Phyllis's elaborate speech. Phanius, ah, it was naturally easy for the justice of men to stand up for justice. Scavola, well then, what about friendship? Who could discourse on it more easily than the man whose chief glory is a friendship maintained with the most absolute fidelity, constancy, and integrity? 8. Laclius, now you are really using force. It makes no difference what kind of force you use. Force it is for it is neither easy nor right to refuse a wish of my sons-in-law, particularly when the wish is a creditable one in itself. Well, then, it has very often occurred to me, when thinking about friendship, that the chief point to be considered is this. Is it weakness and want of means that make friendship desired? I mean, is its object an interchange of good offices, so that each may give that in which he is strong, and receive that in which he is weak? Or is it not rather true that, although this is an advantage naturally belonging to friendship, yet its original cause is quite other, prior in time, more noble in character, and springing more directly from our nature itself? The Latin word for friendship, amicitia, is derived from that for love, amor, 
and love is certainly the prime mover in contracting mutual affection for as to material advantages it often happens that those are obtained even by men who are courted by a mere show of friendship and treated with respect from interested motives but friendship by its nature admits of no feigning no pretense as far as it goes it is both genuine and spontaneous therefore i gather that friendship springs from a natural impulse rather than a wish for help from an inclination of the heart combined with a certain instinctive feeling of love rather than from a deliberate calculation of the material advantage it is likely to confer the strength of this feeling you may notice in certain animals they show such love to their offspring for a certain period and are so beloved by them that they clearly have a share in this natural instinctive affection but of course it is more evident in the case of man first in the natural affection between children and their parents an affection which only shocking wickedness can sunder and next when the passion of love has attained to a like strength on our finding that is some one person with whose character and nature we are in full sympathy because we think that we perceive in him what i may call the beacon light of virtue for nothing inspires love nothing conciliates affection like virtue why in a certain sense we may be said to feel affection even for men we have never seen owing to their honesty and virtue who for instance fails to dwell on the memory of gaius fabricius and manius curius with some affection and warmth of feeling though he has never seen them or who but loathes tarquinius superbus spurius cassius spurius malius we have fought for empire in italy with two great generals pyrrhus and hannibal for the former owing to his probity we entertain no great feelings of enmity the latter owing to his cruelty our country has detested and always will detest nine now if the attraction of probity is so great that we can love it not only in those whom we have never seen but what is more actually in an enemy we need not be surprised if men's affections are roused when they fancy that they have seen virtue and goodness in those with whom a close intimacy is possible i do not deny that affection is strengthened by the actual receipt of benefits as well as by the perception of a wish to render service combined with a closer intercourse when these are added to the original impulse of the heart to which i have alluded a quite surprising warmth of feeling springs up and if any one thinks that this comes from a sense of weakness that each may have some one to help him to his particular need all i can say is that when he maintains it to be born of want and poverty he allows to friendship an origin very base and a pedigree if i may be allowed the expression far from noble if this had been the case a man's inclination to friendship would be exactly in proportion to his low opinion of his own resources whereas the truth is quite the other way for when a man's confidence in himself is greatest when he is so fortified by virtue and wisdom as to want nothing and to feel absolutely self-dependent it is then that he is most conspicuous for seeking out and keeping up friendships did africanus for example want anything of me not the least in the world neither did i of him 
In my case, it was an admiration of his virtue, in his an opinion, maybe, which he entertained of my character that caused our affection. Closer intimacy added to the warmth of our feelings. But though many great material advantages did ensue, they were not the source from which our affection proceeded. For, as we are not beneficent and liberal with any view of extorting gratitude, and do not regard an act of kindness as an investment, but follow a natural inclination to liberality, so we look on friendship as worth trying for, not because we are attracted to it by the expectation of ulterior gain, but in the conviction that what it has to give us is from first to last included in the feeling itself. Far different is the view of those who, like brute beasts, refer everything to sensual pleasure. And no wonder. Men who have degraded all their powers of thought to an object so mean and contemptible can, of course, raise their eyes to nothing lofty, to nothing grand and divine. Such persons, indeed, let us leave out of the present question, and let us accept the doctrine that the sensation of love and the warmth of inclination have their origin in a spontaneous feeling which arises directly the presence of probity is indicated. When once men have conceived the inclination, they, of course, try to attach themselves to the object of it, and move themselves nearer and nearer to him. Their aim is that they may be on the same footing and the same level in regard to affection, and be more inclined to do a good service than to ask a return, and that there should be this noble rivalry between them. Thus both truths will be established. We shall get the most important material advantages from friendship, and its origin from a natural impulse rather than from a sense of need will be at once more dignified and more in accordance with fact. For if it were true that its material advantages cemented friendship, it would be equally true that any change in them would dissolve it. But nature being incapable of change, it follows that genuine friendships are eternal. So much for the origin of friendship. But perhaps you would not care to hear any more? Phanius, nay, pray go on. Let us have the rest, Lelius. I take on myself to speak for my friend here as his senior. Scevola, quite right. Therefore, pray, let us hear. 10. Lelius, well then, my good friends, listen to some conversations about friendship, which very frequently pass between Scipio and myself. I must begin by telling you, however, that he used to say that the most difficult thing in the world was for a friendship to remain unimpaired to the end of life. So many things might intervene, conflicting interests, differences of opinion in politics, frequent changes in character, owing sometimes to misfortunes, sometimes to advancing years. He used to illustrate these facts from the analogy of boyhood, since the warmest affections between boys are often laid aside with the boyish toga. And even if they did manage to keep them up to adolescence, they were sometimes broken by a rivalry in courtship, or for some other advantage to which their mutual claims were not compatible. Even if the friendship was prolonged beyond that time, yet it frequently received a rude shock should the two happen to be competitors for office. 
for while the most fatal blow to friendship in the majority of cases was the lust of gold in the case of the best men it was a rivalry for office and reputation by which it had often happened that the most violent enmity had arisen between the closest friends again wide breaches and for the most part justifiable ones were caused by an immoral request being made of friends to pander to a man's unholy desires or to assist him in inflicting a wrong a refusal though perfectly right is attacked by those to whom they refuse compliance as a violation of the laws of friendship now the people who have no scruples as to the requests they make to their friends thereby allow that they are ready to have no scruples as to what they will do for their friends and it is the recriminations of such people which commonly not only quench friendships but give rise to lasting enmities in fact he used to say these fatalities overhang friendship in such numbers that it requires not only wisdom but good luck also to escape them all eleven with these premises then let us first if you please examine the question how far ought personal feelings to go in friendship for instance suppose coriolanus to have had friends ought they to have joined him in invading his country again in the case of vesalinus or spurius malius ought their friends to have assisted them in their attempt to establish a tyranny take two instances of either line of conduct when tiberius gracchus attempted his revolutionary measures he was deserted as we saw by quintus tubero and the friends of his own standing on the other hand a friend of your own family scaevola gens bosleus of cumae took a different course i was acting as assessor to the consuls lenus and repilius to try the conspirators and blosius pleaded for my pardon on the ground that his regard for tiberius gracchus had been so high that he looked upon his wishes as law even if he had wished you to set fire to the capital said i that is a thing he replied that he never would have wished ah but if he had wished it said i i would have obeyed the wickedness of such a speech needs no comment and in point of fact he was as good and better than his word for he did not wait for orders in the audacious proceedings of tiberius gracchus but was the head and front of them and was a leader rather than an abettor of his madness the result of his infatuation was that he fled to Asia, terrified by the special commission appointed to try him, joined the enemies of his country, and paid a penalty to the Republic as heavy as it was deserved. I conclude, then, that the plea of having acted in the interests of a friend is not a valid excuse for a wrong action. Foreseeing that a belief in a man's virtue is the original cause of friendship, friendship can hardly remain if virtue be abandoned. But if we decide it to be right to grant our friends whatever they wish, and to ask them for whatever we wish, perfect wisdom must be assumed on both sides if no mischief is to happen. But we cannot assume this perfect wisdom, for we are speaking only of such friends as are ordinarily to be met with, whether we have actually seen them or have been told about them. Men, that is to say, of everyday life. I must quote some examples of such persons, taking care to select such as approach nearest to our standard of wisdom. 
We read, for example, that Pappus Aemilius was a close friend of Gaius Licinius. History tells us that they were twice consuls together and colleagues in the censorship. Again, it is on record that Manius Curius and Tiberius Corincanius were on the most intimate terms with them and with each other. Now, we cannot even suspect that any one of these men ever asked of his friend anything that militated against his honor or his oath or the interests of the Republic. In the case of such men as these, there is no point in saying that one of them would not have obtained such a request if he had made it, for they were men of the most scrupulous piety, and the making of such a request would involve a breach of religious obligation no less than the granting it. However, it is quite true that Gaius Carbo and Gaius Cato did follow Tiberius Gracchus, and though his brother Caius Gracchus did not do so at the time, he is now the most eager of them all. 12. We may then lay down this rule of friendship, neither ask nor consent to do what is wrong, for the plea of friendship's sake is a discreditable one, and not to be admitted for a moment. This rule holds good for all wrongdoing, but more especially in such as involves disloyalty to the Republic. For things have come to such a point with us, my dear Fannius and Scevola, that we are bound to look somewhat far ahead to what is likely to happen to the Republic. The Constitution, as known to our ancestors, has already swerved somewhat from the regular course and the lines marked out for it. Tiberius Gracchus made an attempt to obtain the power of a king, or, I might rather say, enjoyed that power for a few months. Had the Roman people ever heard or seen the like before? What the friends and connections that followed him, even after his death, have succeeded in doing in the case of Publius Scipio, I cannot describe without tears. As for Carbo, thanks to the punishment recently inflicted on Tiberius Gracchus, we have, by hook or by crook, managed to hold out against his attacks. But what to expect of the tribuneship of Caius Gracchus I do not like to forecast. One thing leads to another, and once set going, the downward course proceeds with ever-increasing velocity. There is the case of the ballot. What a blow was inflicted first by the Lex Gabinia, and two years afterwards by the Lex Cassia. I seem already to see the people estranged from the Senate, and the most important affairs at the mercy of the multitude. For you may be sure that more people will learn how to set such things in motion than how to stop them. What is the point of these remarks? This. No one ever makes any attempt of this sort without friends to help him. We must therefore impress upon good men that should they become inevitably involved in friendships with men of this kind, they ought not to consider themselves under any obligation to stand by friends who are disloyal to the Republic. Bad men must have the fear of punishment before their eyes, a punishment not less severe for those who follow than for those who lead others to crime. Who was more famous and powerful in Greece than Themistocles? At the head of the army in the Persian War, he had freed Greece. He owed his exile to personal envy, but he did not submit to the wrong done him by his ungrateful country, as he ought to have done. He acted as Coriolanus had acted among us twenty years before, but no one was found to help them in their attacks upon their fatherland. Both of them, accordingly, committed suicide. 
We concluded then not only that no such confederation of evilly disposed men must be allowed to shelter itself under the plea of friendship, but that, on the contrary, it must be visited with the severest punishment, lest the idea should prevail that fidelity to a friend justifies even making war upon one's country. And this is a case which I am inclined to think, considering how things are beginning to go, will sooner or later arise. And I care quite as much what the state of the Constitution will be after my death as what it is now. 13. Let this, then, be laid down as the first law of friendship, that we should ask from friends, and do for friends, only what is good. But do not let us wait to be asked either. Let there be ever an eager readiness and an absence of hesitation. Let us have the courage to give advice with candor. In friendship, let the influence of friends who give good advice be paramount, and let this influence be used to enforce advice not only in plain-spoken terms, but sometimes, if the case demands it, with sharpness, and when so used, let it be obeyed. I give you these rules because I believe that some wonderful opinions are entertained by certain persons who have, I am told, a reputation for wisdom in Greece. There is nothing in the world, by the way, beyond the reach of their sophistry. Well, some of them teach that we should avoid very close friendships, for fear that one man should have to endure the anxieties of several. Each man, they say, has enough and to spare on his own hands. It is too bad to be involved in the cares of other people. The wisest course is to hold the reins of friendship as loose as possible. You can then tighten or slacken them at your will. For the first condition of a happy life is freedom from care, which no man's mind can enjoy if it has to travail, so to speak, for others besides himself. Another sect, I am told, gives vent to opinions still less generous. I briefly touched on this subject just now. They affirm that friendships should be sought solely for the sake of the assistance they give, and not at all from motives of feeling and affection, and that, therefore, just in proportion as a man's power and means of support are lowest, he is most eager to gain friendships. Thence it comes that weak women seek the support of friendship more than men, the poor more than the rich, the unfortunate rather than those esteemed prosperous. What noble philosophy! You might as well take the sun out of the sky as friendship from life, for the immortal gods have given us nothing better or more delightful. But let us examine the two doctrines. What is the value of this freedom from care? It is very tempting at first sight, but in practice it has in many cases to be put on one side. For there is no business and no course of action demanded from us by our honor which you can consistently decline or lay aside when begun from a mere wish to escape from anxiety. Nay, if we wish to avoid anxiety, we must avoid virtue itself, which necessarily involves some anxious thoughts in showing its loathing and abhorrence for the qualities which are opposite to itself as kindness for ill-nature, self-control for licentiousness, courage for cowardice. Thus you may notice that it is the just who are most pained at injustice, 
the brave at cowardly actions, the temperate at depravity. It is then characteristic of a rightly ordered mind to be pleased at what is good and grieved at the reverse. Seeing, then, that the wise are not exempt from the heartache, which must be the case unless we suppose all human nature rooted out of their hearts, why should we banish friendship from our lives for fear of being involved by it in some amount of distress? If you take away emotion, what difference remains, I don't say, between a man and a beast, but between a man and a stone, or a log of wood, or anything else of that kind? Neither should we give any weight to the doctrine that virtue is something rigid and unyielding as iron. In point of fact, it is in regard to friendship, as in so many other things, so supple and sensitive that it expands, so to speak, at a friend's good fortune, contracts at his misfortunes. We conclude, then, that mental pain, which we must often encounter on a friend's account, is not of sufficient consequence to banish friendship from our life, any more than it is true that the cardinal virtues are to be dispensed with because they involve certain anxieties and distresses.' 